0: Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Uh, Let's dive in. Uh, Today we're in Acts 24 and chapter 25, the first 12 verses of 25. We've got only uh, four more Sundays left um, in our series. Uh, Really, through the year, we've covered the Gospel of Matthew, and then we are finishing out the latter chapters of Acts, and we just have a few more weeks in that. And uh, from Acts chapter 13 through 20, Uh, It really has been about Paul and uh, Barnabas and some others on ministry trips, and we've been watching them do these three loops of ministry trips that they've been doing, and then all of a sudden when we hit chapter 21, uh, Paul is returning from what's been essentially 10 years and three ministry trips of taking the gospel to the world and turning the world inside out and upside down. And it just is a cool journey. And it's interesting when he returns back to Jerusalem because, uh, I don't know, I would think when he turns back to Jerusalem, all that, he'd get like some major high fives or something going on. Uh, he meets with the elders there and, and kind of catches up on what's been happening over the last few years there in Jerusalem. And, uh, and then there's like no parade. There's no... Uh, There's no feast dinner to celebrate him being back. In fact, it is the very opposite of all of that. And it is actually in his face, wanting him dead and done and gone. And you sit back sometimes and you just go, man, how sad is that? I mean, just how unfair, how unjust is that? I could say, how corrupt is that? And um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, I can just say in my lifetime, particularly in my adult lifetime, um, the world just is corrupt. And it just seems like it's getting more. Have you kind of noticed that? And um, it, it, I don't say that like I'm all mad about it. I, I just kind of say that like almost in a questioning way of, so what's up with that? I, like what's up with that? Speaking of questions, last Sunday, the question on the table was, was uh, what kept Paul going? Like what kept him going in all the stuff he was experiencing, and even after his return into Jerusalem? And we talked last Sunday, he, he was, had his eyes focused on the sure hope of the resurrection, the sure hope of of the resurrection. In fact, in chapter 24, we'll be reading it through here in a little bit, verses 14 and 15, he refers to that. He says, but this I confess to you, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, here it is, having a hope in God that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul uh, just is grabbing a hold of that hope of the resurrection. He's kind of looking up, bringing it down, looking up, bringing it down all the time as he continues on. I want to bring another uh, passage in before we dive into Acts 24 and 25. And uh, you don't have to turn there. Just listen as I read out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, Paul is writing this and he says this, 2 Corinthians 5, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. I always love it when the Bible has things like that. It's not like, you know, let's sit around and let's debate something. Let's work it through. Let's work out the language. I mean, it's like, here's what I've concluded. This is it. And here's what it is. That one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He goes on to say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he, she is a new what? Creation. By the way, not a slightly altered version of. Not, 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 not kind of something that's lightly changed around. It's literally, you drive the stake in the ground and come to Christ, and the work of Christ creates a whole new creation reality in you as far as the Godhead is concerned. He goes on to say this, the old is passed, behold, the new has come, and then listen, therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors from last Sunday with a sure hope. Uh, Definition of ambassador, uh, Google to the rescue. An accredited diplomat sent by a country as its official representative to a foreign country. Let me say that again. An accredited diplomat sent by one country as its official representative to a foreign company country. Now, if you know Christ is your savior, you have a citizenship in heaven, right? You have a citizenship in heaven. That's where ultimately our citizenship is at. Um, Yet, we are ambassadors for Christ to a foreign country to a foreign land, to a foreign citizenship. That's what, how Paul saw himself, that's what Paul is teaching, that's what Jesus was teaching the disciples, that's who Jesus was, literally, if you will, a foreign citizen, to a, a citizen of one country to a citizen, of four, in, in, an ambassador in another country. He was ambassadorizing. <laughs> I'm making up new words here, friends. Okay? So let's think about this. If, if you are an ambassador, that means your citizenship is from here. And if you're an ambassador, you're a diplomat, you are set, sent to another country. And here you are in this other country. And if you are going to be a good ambassador in a foreign land, you have to understand that land that you live in. Because if you don't understand the place in which you go, what you end up doing is you bring your culture, you bring your citizenship, you bring how you think over here, and then all of a sudden you're living here and you're like, well, my goodness, this is different? Like, they do things differently. Like, life is lived differently here. What's with that? It can be some ways, it can be like, that is really interesting. And other times, it can be frustrating as all get out. And if you are going to be a good ambassador, you have to understand the place in which you are doing the ambassadoring. Okay? Friend in Christ. Brother in Christ, sister in Christ, we live in a foreign land. And if we don't understand what's going on in this place upon which we have been sent as ambassadors for Christ, I'm going to tell you, we are not going to be able to do ministry very well. Not only that, we are going to be frustrated as all fire. Today is about understanding where we live. Okay, I want to be very, very clear about that. Today is understanding as bastards in Christ, where do we live, what's going on where we live, how do they think, what's happening here? And we're gonna get it out of the text from Paul because in this stretch of time as God is taking Paul on his way to Rome, we see this interaction taking place. And, and know this, this is not the kind of time to where we're gonna look at the world that we live in and get all mad about it and get all huffy about it and walk out just like ready to go blah to you, no we're actually gaining an understanding of what's going on here for the reason that as we go and do life in this world as ambassadors for Christ, we can do it increasingly understanding and increasingly effective because we understand it better, okay? with me? Let's understand where we are at as ambassadors. So I have five insights. How many insights? Five insights out of what's happening in the narrative here uh, on what we can learn about our world. Acts 24. As you look there, the context. You look at the very last verse of chapter 23 from last Sunday. We learned that uh, Paul was being relocated from Jerusalem to the coastal city of Caesarea. To the coastal city of Caesarea. It was really cool if you were here last Sunday in chapter 23, because here's Paul. He's being held in the tribune by the Claudius Lysias, the tribune, and the Romans there in Jerusalem in the Antonia Fortress. And then Claudius Lysias is basically saying, hey, it's time to send him to the governor. The governor's place is in Caesarea. And so they load him up with hundreds of Roman soldiers uh, on horses, spear, uh, men with spears and trained in it and put him on a horse and gladiator, he rides to Caesarea. It's really, really cool as we saw last week and it's about 70 miles away. They come in, you can see a rendering of on the screen of uh, Caesarea, uh, what it looked like in that day. If you were to be there and take a look now, uh, it would be more of a flat uh, because all the buildings have kind of collapsed. But this is really, I think, a tremendous rendering of what's going on. You can see the theater, you can see the sports arena where they would do the horse racing and so forth. And then back there at the top, that's, that's what would be Herod's temple or Herod's governing uh, kind of spot. Uh, I think all of what's about to take place here in our text is happening up there in Herod's uh, governing uh, home, if you will. Uh, Know this. The reason that I put these up, I think, is very important that you understand, and as we see this, that, that sometimes people think that the Bible is so ancient about people that are so out of touch. That is such baloney, When you look at an imagery like this on what it looked like back in that day, I am telling you these people are incredibly capable. I mean they had no uh, generators, they had no electricity, they had no John Deere caterpillar equipment to haul things around and they could build stuff like that, are you kidding me? They had no CAD drawings. I mean, and yet they were doing that in this governing thing. So what's happening here is Paul, really on his fourth ministry trip on his way to Rome, he is right here in a center hub of everything that is happening. And he's going to do some ministry here. Let's learn about our world through Paul's world because there's not much difference. I want to begin with verses 1 through 4. And after five days... The high priest Ananias from Jerusalem came down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, uh, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. Tertullus is like this attorney, so uh, the Jerusalem leadership who are just bagging and trashing Paul and want him dead and gone. Uh, They are in the main hub of Caesarea. They have, so it's kind of like Supreme Court. And so they have this uh, guy who's acting as their attorney. And so Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying this. He's bringing the defense before the governor. He speaks to the governor. Since through you we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent, Felix, Reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Now I'm reading it with a tone because here's the point. We live in a world that fawns all over itself. We live in a fawning world fawning, to flatter excessively over someone. Now, why do I say that here? Not only because as you read this, but, but you, you have to understand the, the joke that is happening right here. Felix was not a good guy, the governor. Um, Felix pandered to the emperor to finally get awarded governorship of Judea. In other words, he politically maneuvered and connived his way into position, okay? On top of that, he was known to lead a corrupt, a very corrupt administration. He lacked character, even from this standpoint. His wife was a teenager who he stole from another king. Eventually, his ruling became so corrupt, not at this point yet, but down the road sometime, that Nero removed him. Now, if you understand anything about Nero, know this. Nero was not a nice guy. Nero was not the example of character. And the guy who's not an example of character gets rid of a guy for his character. Got the picture? Felix is not the dude you want to have over to your house for dinner, hanging out with your kids. Okay? On top of that, the Jews knew this. And the Jewish people and the Jewish leadership, the very leadership that are there before Governor Felix, they had a distaste for him. We could say it this way. They hated him. They did not like this guy at all. All. And what do we find them doing? We find them, let's think of theological terminology, sucking up <laughs> to the governor. That's what's going on. And it's a sham. And friends, we live in a world that loves itself. I mean, watch it when, you know, all the award ceremonies when Hollywood loves fawning on itself. Musicians love fawning on themselves. Politicians love fawning on themselves. And I'll even say this. Christians oftentimes get together for things and love fawning all over themselves. And here we find this total corruption that's happening with the Jewish leadership fawning all over this very man that they dislike, distaste, it's not different in our day. We live in a people-adoring, people-worshipping, people-adulating, self-flattering world. That's where we live. I'm not saying that like I'm mad about it. I'm not saying like, let's go kill the beast. I'm just saying this is where we live. It's all around us. And frankly, followers of Christ are oftentimes buying into it. We talk more about self-esteeming ourselves than we do about self-humility. We live in a world that loves itself, loves its abilities, loves its knowledge, loves its powers, loves its capabilities. By the way, it goes all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve, they're there in the garden. Satan fawns all over them to maneuver them. Satan uh, says, hey, Eve, hey, Adam, God is holding back on you. Seriously, just go ahead and bite it. Just go ahead and eat it. Because if you do, your eyes will be opened. And listen to what the text actually says. And you will be like God. And And Adam and Eve bit it. Like yeah, maybe God is holding out on us. Maybe God is holding back on us. Maybe God is giving us a bit of a sham in all of this thing. I wanna be like, so they do. Adam and Eve love being fawned over, and they fawned over themselves and they bid it. We live in a fawning world, insight number two. We live in an an accusing world. We live in an accusing world, verses five through nine. Here Tertullus goes on after all of his fawning. Felix, for we have found this man, let's get to the point, a plague. (laughs) So he's like, you! are so lovely. Now this guy, this guy's a plague. That's how it's going here. He's the one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him lie. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything from which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the charge affirming that all these things were so. We live in an accusing world. In fact, let's go back to the garden. Adam and Eve sin. God comes walking in the cool of the day. By the way, men who are here at the conference, God is generous with his time and generous with his person. And God comes walking in the cool of the day and Adam, where are you? Know this, God had like the ultimate GPS before there ever was a GPS. He knew exactly where Adam and Eve were. They're hiding, covering themselves over. And God is like, Adam, where are you? And finally, Adam's like, I'm here, I'm here. He's like, what's up? What's up, Adam? And when it really comes down to it, here's what Adam does. The woman you gave me. Way to go, guys. That's in our past. We had to stand up for our women, right? Not. By the way, think of that statement. The woman, there's accusing. You gave me accusing. From the get-go, when sin comes into the picture, we find Adam accusing his wife and accusing God. And by the way, ladies, I'm really sorry in this, but also Eve did as well. Because in it, when uh, God He says, Eve, what's up? Eve says, uh, the serpent, uh, uh, he deceived me and I ate. That is true, but, but I do want to say this. This is the common thing of like, okay, I was wrong, but. You see that all the time. It's like, okay, I admit I was wrong, but but them. What about them? They put me in this place. That's really what. Eve is kind of saying he's blaming it on the serpent. Uh, Adam's blaming it on her and God in all of this. Friends, this is the world that we live in. By the way, Noah was accused of being a nutcase Joseph was accused by his brothers. The Old Testament prophets were accused by their own people. Uh, John the baptizer was accused. Jesus was accused. Stephen was accused. Paul was accused. And in our day, nations accuse each other. In our day, politicians accuse each other. Political parties accuse each other. Uh, In our day, uh, we all accuse the New England Patriots of being cheaters, and we're correct in that. Am I right? Second service, I actually had a couple amens. (laughs) But listen, we live in an accusing world, and and, and why is this important? Listen, this isn't getting angry at our world, this is understanding our world. Why is it that we get accused? Because friends, that's our world. That's what happens in a broken world. Maybe you're at at a point to where you've experienced harsh and hard accusing and in no way am I trying to take away the hurt of that and the heavy of that but know this that's our world by the way I want to note three things that Paul is being accused of number one I'm going to term it he was a plague he was being accused as being a plague producer you see in verse five he stirs up riots everywhere We've been following Paul on all these trips. He's not the one going in and trying to bring up a riot. He is not the one doing that. They also accuse him of being, I'll call him a heresy headman. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's a ringleader. And that also kind of carries into he's part of a sacrilege sect. He even tried to profane the temple, which was not true. By the way, I just want to note this. I think those same accusations are increasingly happening of those who know Christ as their savior, those who would be followers of Christ today in our world and I'll even say in our country. We're increasingly being viewed and spoken of as a plague on our society, have you noticed that? Biblical views that we would hold on marriage and Gender and life are now being viewed as human rights heresies. And then it, many of the ideals that we hold to are spoken of as though we are now a sacrilege sect in our secular world. I would suggest that these same kinds of claims are happening today as they were some 2,000 years ago. And it's really important, again, to note that Paul in this, Paul doesn't get all miffed off and says, run for the hills. I actually think Paul understands this and Paul is processing how to minister in it. Let me add one more thing before we kind of go back to the text coming out of this accusing thing. Insight number three. We live in an aborting world. I'm particularly referencing that from this standpoint. We live in, even the term that's being used today, we live in a cancellation culture. You realize when I was younger, I remember understanding that universities, as an example, universities were actually the place where people of differing views and differing thoughts and differing approaches could actually get together and actually interact together. And out of that, even if they disagreed, you were given the privilege and you were given the right to be able to interact together on things. I'm going to say this as a 58-year-old now, that is not happening nowadays in universities. What's happening nowadays in universities is if you would disagree with what that university says, you are to be canceled, removed, eliminated. You are not allowed to even have a discussion anymore. And that's what was going on with Paul in the day. Think of it, Acts 21, 31. We learned that they were seeking not to have a further interaction with him, but to kill him. And then in 21 verse 36, and the mob of people followed crying out, away with him, which was meaning remove him. In 23, 12, the Jews made a plot, bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they had killed Paul. Their accusing was not just accusing and disagreement, their accusing was actually an accusation that was implicating the removal of them, the aborting of them. And that is what's happening. That is what's happening today. Paul was inconvenient. He was a nuisance. He was an offense. He was a blockade to their agenda. And as opposed to being even given the right to have that thought, the right to be able to speak, the right to be able to interact on it, the reaction going on in Paul's days was to abort him. Literally, to remove them out. And today, inconveniences are done away with. Nuisances are removed. Agenda blockers are banished. Those that give offense are eliminated. Not allowed to debate not allowed to even agree to disagree. It's abort. That's the world we live in. And note here, Paul doesn't say, well, everybody should get honked off and mad and kill the beast. What does Paul do? Paul, in all of that, engages. Let's watch, let's watch. Verse 10, and when the governor had nodded to Paul to speak, Paul replied, I mean, you got the sense, again, the picture, you can just see it up in that building at the top. They're in, a, in, a, in this important room where the governor is there, and almost like a, a courtroom, and he nods to Paul, and so Paul, the first attorney, had the time to speak. Now it's time for attorney Paul to give his defense, here he goes, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. I love that. He's not like, I'm all mad about it. He's not like, I've got something to cram down your throat. He's not even like making a judgment call on them and where they're at even in all the corruptness. He's kind of like, okay, I know where I'm at. By the way, notice he doesn't fawn all over Felix. He addresses the fact of where he's at and he's like, cheerfully. I get to make a defense and here he goes you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and they did, not, they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd he's pressing back on the truths being on the table either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which are essentially Christians, there would be like Messianic Jews, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and men. Now, after several years, I came to bring my alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia... They ought to be here before you and to make an ac- accusation. But do you see even way he is, he is respectfully, truthfully, boldly speaking into the situation? He is even essentially saying hey, these guys who are here right now, they aren't even first hand people around with what happened. What you really need to do is you need to go get those guys that we read about in the prior chapters. They need to be here because they are actually the ones who got the whole thing rolling. Listen, Paul is graciously, uh, lovingly, yet strongly, truthfully laying out a case on what is truth. He's not caving, he's engaging. But some Jews from Asia, they uh, ought to be here before you to make an execution should, accusation should they have anything against me. Verse 20, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is re- with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day with all of the unfair, ugly going on, Paul remains strong, Paul remains staid, Paul remains almost like what a sovereign opportunity for me to interact with you, and I cheerfully engage in doing so. I love that. Friends, more of that in us. More of that, of being able to engage straight up and yet lovingly and kindly with our world that is angry. Have you noticed that? Hey, can we talk? Can we discuss facts? That's what Paul's doing. Insight number four we live in an evading world. Verses 22 to 27. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. That's what Felix always does. Saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody. Paul, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be preventing from attending to his needs. By the way, in that day, when you were incarcerated, um, they didn't have cafeteria food for you or such like that. I'm not saying anyway, it's a great situation today. That's not my point. I'm just saying it's different back then. And so actually, family members, friends would come and bring you food. And if you had no one to do that, you were in a heap of trouble, while you were being held. So that's what this is referring to here, that they were allowing people to come and care for his needs. Verse 24, after some days Felix came with his wife, bless her heart, don't say Drusilla, it just sounds like a bad movie, uh, who was Jewish and uh, he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Felix's wife here is Jewish, and they are calling for Paul to come. Do you understand what's going on here? Paul is being held, and Paul is periodically being called by Felix to be able, can we talk? And they are having these times of interaction. We may say, what a waste of Paul's time, but Paul is able to have some one-on-one time here with the governor, let's keep reading. And he sent for Paul, heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. By the way, not necessarily all of his, his case on why he should be released. Paul's like, got an opportunity here. Verse 25, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. They get the reasoning about righteousness and self control and the coming judgment. What an opportunity for paul, but listen don't let that take light on the fact that he's in jail. Yes, he had an opportunity, but he's still having, he's still not in the greatest place on earth uh, verse twenty six at the same time he hoped that money would be given him by paul uh, it, Listen, Felix was so corrupt that he was thinking that through the system he could even use prisoners to get money. Sanctified imagination moment here. I don't know if this is true or not. I'm going to clearly state it as that way. But I wonder if Paul knew that. In fact, I'm going to say this I think there's a very good likelihood that Paul knew that was even going on. Paul knew the systems, he knew how things worked. And in this, it's very likely that Paul understood that Felix is trying to get money from him because Felix would have to somehow be asking for money. And Paul in it, it's, he's not getting on Facebook or getting on Twitter and throwing a crazy fit. Paul's kinda of like, hey, even though your intentions are wrong, I still have an opportunity. To love you with the good news of Jesus Christ, even if you're not even doing it with the right motive. So he sent for him often, conversed with him, when two years had elapsed. How many years? That's a lot of time. I've said in each of the other services that sometimes we can get to where we think of, you know, eventually we'll see Paul in Rome and go, yeah, but he got to write all those epistles. Yeah, he got to be able to minister to the guys chained to him. Okay, that's awesome. But listen, can I say this as a human being, that whole situation is like, who wants that? You know, sometimes it's kind of like we can minister to people who're going through really hard times, and it's like they're right in the throes of the hellfire and brimstone that's coming at them from life, and it's kind of like, hey, know this—it's all going to be good. Well, that is helpful, but right now, I'm also dying. Okay, you go to Job. It's actually when Job's friends started to speak that things got bad. Sometimes there's just be with. And here in this whole situation, two years Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor. Felix left Paul in prison. Our world is an evading world. Here, uh, Festus, or Felix, is avoiding the whole situation with Paul. He just kind of puts it off, puts it off, puts it off. He could have dealt with it. He could have dealt with it. And, and he's having interactions with Paul about spiritual things. And yet, when I have the opportunity, when it's convenient. Friends, this is our world and having to do with how our world views God. You know, we'll kind of, when, when it works for me. Uh, then I'll really give some thought to it. It's kind of this evading, even of life and the fact of death. My word, our world does everything it can to evade death. Hey, if you understand biblically that, and you know Christ as your Savior, Paul even talked about. For it's better for him to be with the Lord than here. When we understand the world we live in, and part of what's been interesting, and I'll just say it interesting for me today, is I've been teaching on this, I think there's something in this where this is a hard text, this is a hard sermon to both preach and to receive, because as part of it is, it's like, man, you're coming down on our world. But friends, we are ambassadors from another world, and this is not our world. And yet, isn't it interesting how we think this is it? And we have this tendency to think this world can provide all that we're yearning for in life and eternity. And the longer we can just hang on to be here, and over time, and particularly after doing the Revelation series, I'm just like, Lord, seriously, leaving would be awesome. Because the truth of the matter is, Theologically, in this time of redemptive history, we live in a hellhole. And in many ways, it's like, look at he split. However, I could rhyme that, let's get out of here. But here's the deal we're ambassadors that have been sent here. And so we continue on because there is now a purpose here. It is a broken world. It is a heavy world. It is a sad world. It is a corrupt world. But friends, we are here to bring light to a darkness. And this is not all there is. Thank God. There are a lot of wonderful things here. Look around at the beauty. Look at the heavens and the stars. People can be wonderful and marvelous. Family, what a cool thing, and what an odd thing. But we are ambassadors here in this foreign land. Let's finish out last thing. We live in a calculating world. Let me just read through the end, first 12 verses of chapter 25, and then we'll finish. Now three days after Festus, who was the new governor, had arrived in the province, Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor, against Paul that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. There's all this calculating that's going on. There's all this maneuvering that's going on. And and in it, Festus is now the new governor. A few days after he's new governor, he heads down to Jerusalem just to kind of catch up, I think is what the idea of the text. And historically we have, he's heading down to Jerusalem to catch up because Jerusalem was a major city. So he's kind of catching, and isn't it interesting? Paul has been put away, incarcerated away out of the public, if you will, uh, in Caesarea for how many years? At least two years. And already when he comes down, that's the thing that the Jewish leadership brings up. Why aren't they just like, Shh, don't say a word and maybe they'll just leave him there. No, you see, they're still hot. They don't want him just held away. They want him aborted. And in this, there's this calculating maneuvering. They're like, Festus, do us a favor. You know, politicians nowadays, yeah, I do you a favor, you do me a favor, that's how it works. Yeah. And that's what's going on here. Let's keep going to the story. Uh, um, Festus, verse 4, replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea. And that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. At this point, we get the idea that Festus is like, I'm not playing this game. Hold on. Verse 6. After he stayed among them for not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, altitude down. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, accusing that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, it's kind of like after a few days he began thinking about it you know what, maybe it would be a good calculating move. Where am I at? Sorry, guys, it's been a long, week, full weekend. Nine, thank you. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be there on these charges before... Uh, be tried on these charges before me, but Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. Paul knows exactly how. Listen, it should happen here. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. That's cool. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Caesar. Paul knew what his next move was. Friends, do speak. Do speak out. Do enter in. Do engage in. I thank you for so many people here and other uh, Christ followers in our community who are involved in our communities and are speaking into our communities and are there to love on our communities in it. And here we have this. Paul knew the process, and he finally gets to the point where it's like, I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he had confessed, Uh, conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And we're going to follow him on the trip there. We are ambassadors sent to a foreign country to ambassadorize where God has put us. And to do that well, and to do that with increased effectiveness, we need to be reminded where we have been sent to. And where we are, not in a mad way, we live in a fawning world. We live in an accusing world. We live in an aborting world world. We live in an evading, our creator world. We live in a calculating world. That's the world we live in. That's the world we have been sent to turn upside down with the good news of Jesus Christ. Lovingly, graciously, boldly, cheerfully. When we head out here in just a little bit today, you don't head out mad. You don't head out to your car like, oh, crud. Got to go out to this corrupt world. When I get home, I'm going to let everyone know online how corrupt this world is. Um, I genuinely pray that when we leave this room today, we go out understanding that, and God give us wisdom to love our world that is like that. Right? More of that. And what a fitting way to be able to finish our time at the foot of the cross, remembering that it is the work of Christ that allows us to be able to do that. So would you pray with me as the communion servers get in place and when I'm done praying and the music is playing, when you're ready, get up. There's servers in the back, servers up front. Uh, Come get the bread, bring the cup, bring it back to your seat and then we'll partake together and finish our time. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your graciousness with us. My goodness, I I literally at times, I don't understand why you just didn't destroy us. But instead, in your grace, for your glory, you desire that broken people, sin-cursed people like ourselves would come to understand what you have done, that you have stepped, put your feet on the ground, that you have stepped, that you have gone to the cross, that you paid the price that we could not pay for ourselves, and you've made that available to us for our redemption, for our covering of sin. We have been saved If we have received Christ as our Savior, we have been redeemed. And as part of that redeeming reality, what comes out of that, as a part of that, is that we are now ambassadors of Christ Jesus to our world, to our schools, to our workplaces, to our communities, to our neighborhoods, to our homes to our church. And, And Lord, it is hard for us as people who yearn for heaven. You know how hard it is for us to continue pressing on when we live in such a corrupt world and we ourselves are limping people anyway. And yet, Lord, if we understand where we live and what's going on where we live, I would pray it would give us increased wisdom and that the Spirit of God would use these things to help us in our long-suffering, in our patience, in our endurance, in our proclamation, in our boldness, in the telling of our stories to people. And if it were not for the work of Christ on the cross, there would be no hope. But right now we remember the sure hope of the work of Christ. Amen.